Well, I have the honor of introducing our chapel speaker this morning. Josephine Cardi is a Northwestern alumnus, class of 1995, who works as a licensed psychologist presently serving our UNW community as the Director of Counseling Services. Joe and his wife Rhonda have been married 26 years and have three adult children, of whom I am one of them. Together, they are members of Coon Rapids E-Free Church, where Joe has served as an elder, board chairman, youth sponsor, and adult Sunday school teacher. Would you please give a warm welcome this Wednesday to my dad, Joe Biancardi. Thank you. Well, good morning. It is, uh, I'm excited to be with you today. Uh, I want to thank Darren for giving me this chance to, to be with you. As some of you may or may not know, he and I really uh, have a teasing kind of relationship when it comes to our favorite football clubs. Uh, but when it comes to Jesus, uh, we are both very serious and sober. Uh, and so I count it a great privilege to be able to uh, open up the word and study with you today. Thank you, worship team, for leading us in that beautiful, beautiful worship, preparing our hearts for what comes to ask the Spirit to be here to sing of the Lord's loving kindness. And with that, uh, let us turn our hearts to prayer. Heavenly Father, I I thank you for this day. I I thank you uh, for chapel, that we have a chance each day to come to set aside our worries, our burdens, uh, our stresses, and just focus on you. Um, Lord, I pray that the meditation of my mind and the words in my mouth will be pleasing in your sight. Uh, Guard my mouth from any error, and may the words that we chew on this morning find receptive hearts. Holy Spirit, come. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, it is no great secret that experience is considered the best teacher. Our experiences change us, sometimes for the better, sometimes for the worse. But what cannot be denied is that our experiences have a great formational impact on our lives, on who we are, on who we become, what we will do. It's one of the reasons you're all wanting an internship, right? It's why when you are sitting down for a job interview, the potential employer wants to hear about your experience. Experience becomes something that you get to leverage against future experiences. It's a relational currency of sorts. It's useful. But sometimes when we're stressed or out of balance, it is easy for us to kind of let our experience revert us to bad habits to maybe things that weren't so helpful. But what cannot be denied is experience teaches. Now, I'm the son of a sailor. My father spent his entire career uh, in government service. He joined the Navy in the late 1960s and retired from the Navy an officer in the late 80s. He then went to work as a civilian contractor for the Army through the 90s, and in the early 2000s, he wrapped up his career with Homeland Security. Now, I'm proud of my dad and his service, but one thing is for sure, his experience changed him. Years of getting up at 3.30, 4 in the morning has rendered him an early riser. Even now, in his retirement, He's in bed at 8, and if he's still in bed at 7 a.m., we start to get worried. 
You know, he would tell you, it's probably not what he would prefer, but it's just how it is. You see, the Navy started with him as a young man, and they broke him down, and they molded him into something that they could use, and it permanently transformed him. And when it comes to experience, it's no different for us. Now, I've entitled my message this morning, Where to Fix Your Eyes. And in the next few minutes, we're going to explore how the life of a true Christian is characterized by a pattern of breaking and being built up again into something that is useful. For those of you who are beleaguered and bruised this morning, I pray that you, in the moments to come, see the gentleness of Jesus, his loving kindness that we just sang about in meeting you in your pain, in your hurt, right where you are. In a room this size, no doubt some of you might be on a different spot. You might be experiencing the coldness of indifference when it comes to faith. And for you, I pray that you'll turn from a space of self-reliance because it leads to futility and that you'll surrender your life, recommit your life to Jesus in order to find your life. Beloved, we have to learn to stop fixating on ourselves and on our temporal circumstances and focus on the power and purpose of Christ. This is the key to endurance. It is the key to perseverance. Think back to your Bible lesson, Philippians chapter two, right? The famed passage of the kenosis where Paul talks about Jesus who did not grasp equality with the Father as something that he needed to hold on tightly to, so tightly that he would fail to take on the mission of condescension, that is to take on flesh. God's very self-disclosure in flesh becomes like us. And what does he do? Right? He becomes humiliated. He is laid low through the humiliation of the cross, of the pain, of suffering. Paul t- says that Jesus had to learn obedient, through obedience, through suffering. That's amazing. He experienced the shame of the cross, the shame of his nakedness there, learning obedience through suffering, and because of that, God has exalted him to the highest place, to the right hand of power, where he rules. Now, the Lord taught us in John chapter 13 that no servant is greater than his master. Therefore, the life of Christ, of a Christ follower, necessarily imitates the pattern demonstrated for us in Jesus' life. That is, our humiliation, the dark night of the soul, is not purposeless, but it will, be, it will turn to rejoicing and exaltation. Specifically, as we look to Christ alone for the comfort of salvation and the assurance of his love in our hour of need. This is the pattern of transformation and it makes us useful servants for his kingdom. So this morning I want us to look at one of my favorite apostles, the apostle Peter. I think really what I like about Peter's story is that In him, I see a man who's filled with good intention, yet he's vulnerable to impulsivity and letting his emotion get the best of him. He's not exactly the type of guy to sit still. He's a doer. But sometimes that can kind of get in his way, right? Sometimes he can't get out of his own way. And I don't know about you, but I can identify with that. Does anybody identify with that? Thank you. (laughs) Right? It's... Accordingly, right, his life is an exemplar of 
how one is made fit for service. And we're gonna see today that one is never too far gone, that Jesus cannot reach you, restore you, or lead you. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to John chapter 21. That's where we're gonna be. Now John is identified in this fourth gospel as both the beloved disciple and the evangelist. He has as his chief aim to convince his reader or the hearer that Jesus has the most unique relationship to God as the Christ. He is the monogenes, the unique one, the son of God, that is, and that by believing in him, you may have life, and you'll have that life in his name. Now, as we look at 21, we have to have a little context, okay? What's going on? It's the very end of John's gospel. And when it opens, we see that Peter and the 12 are supposed to be waiting for the Lord in Galilee. I think Matthew writes that he's supposed to be waiting for the Lord on some mountain, right? This is after the resurrection. But it's clear from the text that Peter decided, you know, he wanted to go fishing. And six of the disciples followed him in this seemingly impulsive desire to do it. Now, you can see then that the fisher of men has gone back to what he knew, to be a fisherman. We see that they aren't out wetting a line as if it's just some sort of uh, way to de-stress, right? They're out working all night. They're working their nets and they've come up empty-handed. This isn't some mere recreational junket, as it were. Peter is working hard. He's in a state of undress. And if you think about it, busyness provides a safe place to hide. I think that is one of the great sins of our era. And Peter, I think, is hiding in his work. They've been laboring all night in their own strength, and they have come up empty. They haven't accomplished a thing. Now, this is a striking, symbolic reminder of Jesus' words to us in John 15, where he says that apart from him, we can do nothing. Now, as I said, under stress, we all regress to what is familiar. And here, Peter has gone back to what he knows, fishing. But look at what Jesus does. He lovingly meets Peter where he is at in his shame. Now, why do I think he's in his shame? Well, it's because this is right after the resurrection. He has the humiliation of the denial right before, during Jesus' sham trial. But we're going to see that Jesus is all about bringing Peter back to the beginning of his story. How did we meet? What did I call you to do? Remember, I'm your hope. Remember your power and your strength. It comes from me. It doesn't come from you. It's not up to you. And God is calling all of us into great things. And so we sang, Spirit, come. In Luke 5, 1 through 11, you can read how Peter's out fishing very similarly and Jesus calls him and he says, follow me and I will make you a fisher of men. But friends, we cannot miss this. God's heart is the heart of a shepherd, which means he, it is a heart of pursuit. Think back to Luke 15, which begins where Jesus says that the shepherd goes after the one and not the 99 and surely there's more rejoicing in heaven over the one who repents. It's a big party over one. Jesus modeled that when he went across the lake and healed the demoniac. I mean, he went there for one person, cast out all those demons, and went back. One person is worth it to God. You're worth it to God. But let's look to the text, picking up in verse 9. 
When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared to ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and he took bread and gave it to them and so with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. After saying this, he said to him, follow me. There's something powerful that happens here because you see kind of a glimpse of the old Peter in what's next. Peter turned and he saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them, the one who had leaned back against him during the supper and said, Lord, who is it that is going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? Jesus said to him, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. Now, there is much happening. There's a lot going on here. At first glance, we see an obvious parallel, right? First Peter's boast that he would die for Jesus results in, what, three times a denial. We're going to see three times he's asked if he's loving the Lord, right? When he made that boast on the night of the last Passover, though, he did that in front of his brothers, right? He was a man who was brimming with self-confidence. He was cocksure, if you will, right? He was confident that he was loyal. He was the most loyal, right? He was confident in his competence. He's the one that usually speaks for the 12, and he was competent in doing what had to be done. Though Jesus predicted that Peter would deny him three times before the rooster would crow that morning, Peter's brashness was on full display when a short time later he showed an eagerness to fight. You'll recall that at the time Jesus was arrested, he pulled out his sword, he cut off the high priest servant's, uh, Malchus's ear, right? He was ready to rumble, as it were. Uh, but that's not the way of the kingdom. That is not the way of the lamb. Commentator D.A. Carson observes, whatever potential service Future service Peter had therefore depended not only on forgiveness from Jesus, but also on a reinstatement among the disciples. You see, all that boasting and then the denial, he lost face before his brothers. Now, we go back to John 21, and the unfolding scene takes place in the presence of a charcoal fire. That's not incidental. And I think this is a mercy to Peter. You see, on the night he betrayed the Lord, he was standing by a charcoal fire when he denied him. 
where only a few hours earlier, Peter had been self-assured, outspoken, eager to give his life for Jesus, this leader amongst his brethren, when faced with the possibility of being relegated an enemy of the state, he crumbled, he folded. Confronted by a servant girl about being one of Jesus' followers, he lies three times. He hears the rooster crow, he remembers Jesus' words, he's been laid low to him. He's denied the one he said he would give his life for. He goes out full of shame and he weeps tears of bitterness. He fled that scene on the night of the trial, fulfilling Jesus' citation of Zechariah 13, seven. Strike the shepherd and the sheep will scatter. As stated, we see that Peter's restoration, like his fall, is public. Three times Peter denied Jesus, three times Peter is asked if he loves Jesus. With each affirmative response to the Lord's questions, Jesus charges Peter with an action. Feed, tend, and feed again. These verbs are the deeds of a shepherd, of a pastor, of Christ, a minister, right? Having been previously broken and laid low, Peter is now being made reborn, fit for service as a minister of the good news, the gospel of our Lord Jesus. But there's more. I love this. Jesus and Peter are involved in a linguistic game of hide and seek. It's more than just three times denied, three times restored. You know, the New Testament is mostly constructed in Greek, and I suppose Greek is probably one of the most, if not the most precise of all human languages. It's wonderfully nuanced. And we know that there's this linguistic game of hide and seek because the Apostle John employs two different verbs here for love. In these verses, we see his use of the verbs agapeo, from where we get the word agape, a word for love meaning complete and total commitment or devotion. It's the supreme love, if you will, to love all the way with, with abandon. And the other that he uses is phileo, a word for love that is, I have a great affection for you. I'm fond for you. I'm your guy. Love you lots. Jesus' expectation, though, is that his followers love him wholeheartedly, agapeo, with total commitment. He doesn't want a part of you. He wants all of you. And that is the path for us to live a faithful life, and it's the path for joy. In verse 15, Peter, Jesus asked Peter, Simon, son of John, do you agapeo me more than these? Peter responds, yes, Lord, you know that I phileo you. I went like this more than these, right? Because he's given the ministry of his shepherd, feed my lambs, but that phrase, more than these, could point to the nets or perhaps the accoutrements of a fishing business. However, Matthew tells us that Peter had once boasted in front of all of his brothers that he would be more devoted than all of them. Matthew records that story for us, right? So I wonder, I can't help but wonder if he's actually, do you love them, do you love me more than they love me? He's like bringing him back to his biography. They'll all fall away, Jesus, but I'll never fall away, Matthew records. Second time Jesus says, Simon, son of John, do you agapeo me? He said, yes, Lord, you know that I phileo you. Jesus instructs Peter, tend my sheep. Verse 17 he said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you phileo me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. 
you know that I phileo you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. In this linguistic game of hide and seek, Peter just got found out. The Lord has compassionately shown Peter his heart. He sees straight into his heart, just like he sees straight into ours. And in fact, he's mercifully showing Peter his own heart. There is no more hiding. It's done. The game is up. And so Peter is grieved. Perhaps Peter's response with a lesser form of love, phileo, might reflect maybe a sheepishness on his part, a a hesitancy perhaps to answer so boldly after he had been so confident and had been broken. Whatever it is, it's clearly this. It's clearly an acknowledgement that he indeed loved Jesus, but in a manner contrary to what he had previously boasted and less than what Jesus deserves. Jesus' condescension to him, to use that word phileo, as Peter was using, was not lost on Peter. His sorrow over this seems to indicate awareness that his behavior did not even warrant a lesser love from the Lord. The phrase, Lord, you know everything, is a statement that reflects Peter's acknowledgement of his failure and imperfection. It's also a beg on the Lord's omniscience. It kind of harkens back to David's prayer at the end of Psalm 139. I know you all know it, right? Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. See if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Every single phrase in David's psalm there is an emphatic statement. Exclamation, exclamation, exclamation. How is it that David can pray in such a way to ask God to examine himself, to lead him away from sin? I mean, that is a call to be disciplined. He's asking him to look at him and to chasten him, right? We can't lose that. Well, I think that's because his confidence is not in his righteousness, but his confidence is that God is fair. It's in, in his rooted firmly in God's character. He, know that God, he knows that God will not shame him. That's huge. God does not shame his children. It is God who provides atonement, a covering for our sin. That's what atonement means. The Lord covered Adam and Eve in their shame by what? Covering their nakedness with animal skins. He covers the sins of the Old Testament saints by instituting the sacrificial system. He covered the sins of the apostle and all of us through the shed blood of the Lamb of God, Jesus. Peter's reliance then on the Lord's, bless, on the Lord's knowledge of his heart then is it's a move away from self-reliance or his own strength to a reliance on Christ's strength and character. Perfect love, complete love, can only be accomplished in the strength of Jesus. The Lord accepted this response. He accepted it and he restored Peter to service. Andreas Kostenberger says it this way, perhaps at long last Peter has learned that he cannot follow Jesus in his own strength and he has realized the hollowness of affirming his own loyalty in a way that relies more on his own power of will than on Jesus' enablement. Jesus has skillfully moved Peter from the shame of his past into his future, that is, to the position of being a leader among the apostles in the early church. Whereas Whereas Peter had previously boasted that he would die for Jesus, now Jesus prophesies that Peter will indeed bring him glory and praise by dying for him. Peter would indeed be granted this desire that he had, but this time, with his eyes fixed on Jesus, he was actually going to be comforted in this knowledge, in this prophecy, knowing that he would not deny the Lord again, but that he would persevere to that point. He would make it to the end. That's good news. 
Now, that phrase, stretch out your hands in verse 18, the ancients understood that to be, as you all do as well, right? A a sign of, of crucifixion. The church father, Tertullian, affirms that Peter was crucified some 30 years after this uh, under the Roman emperor Nero. So how is it that Peter would endure the next three decades and persevere all the way to martyrdom? How do he do it? Well, the answer is this, follow me. Follow me is the answer. He didn't do it in his own strength. That is to say, keep your eyes on me, Peter. When Peter inquires about the disciple John, Jesus' response is blunt, it's to the point, it's terse, and it's emphatic. You follow me. In other words, mind your own business, Peter. Trust me and obey what I command. You follow me. Fix your eyes up here. There's a very clear application we can't miss. Follow me is a command that Jesus gives to you and to me, right? To follow Jesus is to fix our eyes on him, to love what he loves, to hate what he hates. If we are to do this, we have to be uh, men and women of the word. We have to know it. It's a call to obey his commands, and we cannot know his commands unless we're a people of the book, right? In John 14, Jesus states, if you love me, keep my commandments. That's an unmistakable call to holiness. Take up your cross daily and follow. If anyone will follow after me, he's to take up his cross daily and follow, right? That, that's what Jesus expects of us, of all of his children. But when we trust in ourselves, when we kind of regress to that space, we're kind of resting control. We're trying to be like the captain of our own fate, of our lives, and that only leads to burnout and frustration and hurt. But when we relinquish that, when we fix our eyes on Christ, the author and perfecter of our faith, the spirit of the Lord empowers us and allows us and moves us into spaces that we can't even imagine. It's the result of a love then. Our moving is the result of a love that does not prevaricate but is all in. Lord, help us to be all in. So, Lastly, D.A. Carson, he says, follow me is an implicit invitation to every waverer, reader, to become, to, to, to really steadfastly pursue the risen Lord. So my call to you is just simply this this morning as we end. Entrust yourself to him. This is the essence of faith. All of our righteousness is a filthy rag. We know this. The prophet Isaiah said it, right? Christ commands us to be perfect uh, as he is, but we can't accomplish that on our own. We can't do that in our own will, in our own power. We never can. We never could. Right? We're not going to be good enough to merit a favor from God as if he somehow owes me or you something. That's just not how it works. Right? The slightest sin, something we've all done, is a chasm of infinite distance between God and humans. We must simply, completely entrust our lives and soul into his loving care by faith. As such, our confidence must be in Christ's strength and his works, the cross, not our own. When we do so, he will animate our lives. He will enliven our hearts with love for him and empower us to obey those things which he commands, namely, to love the Lord God with all of our hearts, our soul, and our strength. It's the greatest command. So in conclusion, then, the call of the Christian is to imitate Christ by having our life conform to his. It has to be transformed by him. It is to accept Jesus on his terms, not our own. That's what the world does. They only accept the Jesus that they imagine, not the Jesus of the book. 
We have to accept Jesus on his terms. It is to set aside our sinful self-confidence and admit that we are what he says, hopelessly inadequate, and we just need to turn to him in faith. In faith, we die to self. In return, we receive the promise of glory, right? That is a life with him as his beloved now and forevermore. This is the arc of Peter's life, and so it is for all of us who would follow after him by following Christ. Now, if hearing my words this morning, you realize you've not loved God as he commands, and frankly, I think that's all of us. (laughs) Or maybe you've been trusting your own strength and goodness for salvation. I pray that right now in this moment, you come to him, right? Come to him. He's calling you into full fellowship with himself. He's calling you with outstretched arms. Entrust yourself to him completely. He's rich in mercy. He is compassionate. He's full of love for you. Receive him. This is good news. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the stories that you say that we can learn from you, our master and our leader. Father, we bow before you from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named that according to the riches of your glory, you may grant us strength through the power of your spirit in our inner being. May Christ dwell in our hearts through faith that we may be firmly established in love for you and one another, comprehending the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. Oh, may we be filled with you, O oh God. It is in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.